Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. Happy Valentine's Day and happy Ash Wednesday. Um, I saw something this morning where someone had asked AI to combine Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday, and it was a picture of someone putting a heart of ashes on someone's forehead. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see. Um, I also had a question about why we use ashes on Ash Wednesday, which is a good one, and one that I think comes up every single year. Ashes are a reminder of our mortality. And so it literally is like a, you know, when things burn and decay, they turn to ash. So when we put ashes on our foreheads, we're just reminding ourselves we're gonna die. I mean, it's as simple as that. And it's one of those reminders that for those of us who kind of grew up with this, may not be so profound anymore because it's typical, um, especially maybe for those of us who feel like, who have kind of accepted for any number of reasons, either we just, we've lived with it long enough or we are around it enough or maybe we're old enough or any number of things, that death is certainly closer than it once was. But I will say for me, and I think I wrote about this a year or two ago here, my first year as a priest, I was asked to go do the school. We had a preschool, just like we do here at St. Michael, um, their Ash Wednesday service. And I just hadn't thought through what it meant to put ashes on like a toddler. <laughs> and it really hit me when I'm looking at this, you know, like an 18 month old and saying, you are dust and to dust you shall return. I mean, it's fine. It kind of felt fine for an adult. Um, because sure, at some point we figure out, yes, we're gonna diet, but the children who are totally unaware of even what death is, to still mark them is, I think, at least for me, is profoundly faithful because that's the promise. The promise is that what we see is not all there is and that death is just the next step of life. And to bring children into that at a very young age hopefully makes death just a part of life and not scary. I think a lot of people get scared of death at some point in their life, um, but hopefully if we talk with children, which is why I'm such a proponent of catechesis and godly play and all of that, and why I think you should absolutely take your children to funerals. Um, a lot of people say like, don't talk about scary things with children, you know, cancer or hospitalization or death and don't go to funerals. That's, if I may be so bold, really, really wrong. And you really should talk to children about death because they're not naturally scared of it like you are. Don't assume just because you don't like it that they won't like it. They get scared because you're scared. And so if you can actually give them a chance to accept it the way that we are meant to accept it as Christian people, you're gonna give them a massive gift. And so if you've got people in your life or if you're raising your own children, don't be so scared because they're not and don't make them scared because you're scared. So, okay, there's Ash Wednesday. Um, I should also say, we have a service at noon, so if you're here, then you probably could stay. Um, although I do see, I do see some foreheads with ashes, so good for you, you've already done it. Um, and then we do ashes to go at 12.30, so I take the ashes from the church at our noon service out into Preston Center, and around 1230-ish, I usually kind of post up at the corner by Susie Cakes. Um, there's something nice about standing in front of a cupcake shop and giving out ashes. So if you need them, come see me there. And then we have a family service at five o'clock tonight and then a choral 
Ash Wednesday service at seven o'clock tonight. So I hope you can plug in as we go. And I think that's good. So let's say a prayer and let's get rolling because there's a ton to do today. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, on this Ash Wednesday, we ask your blessing upon us that we have the courage to commit to 40 days of any kind of discipline that will help us grow closer to you. Whether we take something on, give something up, help us each day to mark our faith and our trust and our love of you in a very intentional way as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate once again the power of your resurrection at Easter. Be with those we hold in our hearts and minds, those who need your healing touch, and those who may be near death. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to kick off with a few questions. We had a person ask um, over the week to define exegesis and eisegesis. We talked about that last week. Um, I think Bub and I both forgot to do that and email it out. So she will put the definitions in her email next week, the reminder of next week's class. But I wanted to just spend 90 seconds on this. So for those of you who are not familiar with the terms, exegesis, E-X, E-G-E-S-I-S, and then eisegesis, E-I-S, E-G-E-S-I-S. The X and the ice are the two prefixes to the word. So X means out, ice means in, and then this Jesus word, the etymology of that is hegemoi, which is where we get word like hegemony, and it means leadership or to lead. And so essentially we either take the lead out of scripture or we put in what we wish scripture to lead us into. And so essentially, as I said last week, the way that this works is properly we should be exegeting texts in scripture, which means we take as little bias as possible to the scripture itself. And then when we read the scripture, we do what we do in here. As a good student, we try to put that scripture into context. When was it written? Who was it written by? Where was it written? What was going on in the world at the time? What's a lot of the context? Because it was all written by humans, inspired, yes, but still human people writing in a particular time. Were they writing to a particular person or group of people? And on and on and on. That context we build, and then we take the lead, so to speak, out of what that scripture passage is. Eisegesis is what happens more often than it should, which is we take our bias in with us. That's when people will pluck out one or a half a verse to defend some policy or some way of being that they really want to defend. And anyone who's ever studied scripture, whenever that happens, people like you who are studying scripture should immediately realize they've taken that out of context. That's what we say all the time, it's out of context or they've taken the one moment in the entire Bible when something is said or written, when everything else in the Bible does not point in that direction, and then they draw one dramatic conclusion about the meaning of life in total. We would then look at that and say, absolutely not. That's not the way that you take the lead out of scripture. You're putting it in. 
And so that's really the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. If you have another question, feel free to write to us um, because we can unpack that a bit more as we go. But the definitions, as I kind of wrote them out, will be emailed to all of you as well. We also have one more question. Whether Jesus picked Judas knowing that he would betray him, which is such a great question. I'm going to answer very simply, knowing that when we get to the point where Judas is in the garden with the troops and everything, I'm going to talk a lot more about my interpretation of Judas and that moment and what I think, where I think perhaps Judas has gotten a bad rap over history. Um, but the question then asked whether that was preordained. And so that's the idea I really want to lift up. I want us to continue to work on the idea of whether or not we think everything that happens is part of God's preordained plan. I do not think, I would not ever say to someone that they're wrong for that. Because I do think there are ways in which we can read scripture and interpret scripture that actually does say, yes, everything is planned. And of course, there are amazing theologians in history, John Calvin being one of them, who landed on that particular way of understanding scripture. As an Episcopalian, as an Anglican Christian, that's just not the, uh, the way that we interpret the macro of God's story in scripture. When we've talked in here before, I've said that when bad things happen, that's when we tend to hear people say, it's all part of God's plan. You know, it's that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of idea. That is a, that's actually, I think in many instances, quite a very helpful coping mechanism because it, it helps one accept a terrible tragedy and move forward. But I do think that if we can be a bit more thoughtful, either to prepare for the bad things or in reflection of the bad things, a better place to land than what is more Anglican is that God does not plan or cause bad things. Bad things happen because the world is bad. Instead, God's with us in those bad moments and God can turn good out of the bad. That's very different than God putting us in the bad situation. I think that even the people who think that God put us in the bad situation would still say God could do something good out of it. So I think that's where we kind of, of the Venn diagram, that's where we overlap. But to me, it's far more important to say that God is not planning for bad things, but instead, God will be with us in the bad and then help turn that into good. So that's all I'll say at that point. We'll talk about Judas because I do think Judas, in a sense, exemplifies the nuance of that idea. Any follow-up or question about that before we move on? Yes. Yeah, so the comment is, if God preordained all the bad stuff, it would change your perspective of God. And I think that that's really, systematically, that's where I land, is 
systematic theology is just like any other kind of rational or logical way of approaching a complex idea. There are certain decisions along the way that kind of build the house, so to speak. And when we make one decision, it cascades into other decisions. If we, if for me, my starting place is God is love. So if God is love, I cannot figure out how to keep God as love and God as the cause of pain. That I struggle with. I cannot reconcile those two things. I can, however, reconcile that the world is painful and God's love helps us overcome the pain. That all makes sense. And that's about as good as I can do because I'm not a theologian. So for me, it's much more how do we actually make this work in real life? And I'm not willing to give up that God's love is the complete foundation. I do think that there are others that perceive of God more of the judge than of the love or the grace. And if God's a judge first, then I can see how perhaps God has a plan and the the plan includes pain in order for us to grow. That I can make sense of, but that's just not my starting place. And so I think that that's perhaps one of the ways that Christians of good faith can diverge because we, our starting places shift. Any others? All right. There's a lot in chapter 14 today. We are going to clean up Chapter 13, because I said I would just kind of tie it off. And then that's section one. And then we're going to go into two parts of chapter 14. The first being the way to God, and the second being the helper. And so let's clean up chapter 13 quite quickly. So we know that at, during the Last Supper, there's the moment where Jesus passes the bread to Judas. Judas gets up and leaves. At that point when Judas leaves... Jesus pivots into what we often call the farewell discourses. Chapters 14, 15, 16 are the farewell discourses, but they really begin at the very end of chapter 13. And so when Jesus pivots and begins to just speak, there's not a lot of engagement. If you've got a red letter Bible, then you know in chapters 14, 15, and 16, it's almost entirely red because Jesus is just talking. Now, there's a bit of engagement. Um, there are some questions from Thomas, from Philip, from Peter. I mean, we'll see some of those. But mostly Jesus is taking a moment to just tell the disciples a bunch of stuff. We know that Jesus has triggered the leadership in the world, both by the raising of Lazarus, by the triumphal entry on the donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus has made his stand. He's created a scene. He has caused too much attention. He knows the end is coming soon, like days. And so he takes this moment to just tell the disciples the last things he would like them to know. So today, next week, the week after, we're really just rolling through a lot of stuff Jesus says to his disciples at the very end before we get to the arrest in the garden. It begins here at the end of chapter 13, and we get a whole, Jesus is going to go away. So if we just look at the end of chapter 13, 
We'll start at verse 31 and just read the end. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We'll stop there. This is the anchor for most of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And we'll get into chapter 14 too. We are now at the moment where the real Christian theology roots itself. Stories are nice. The healings are nice. Parables are nice. All good things. They help fill out in three dimensions who Jesus is and who we know God is through Jesus. But when we talk of theology, when we talk of what makes Christianity what it is, the early Christians, not only first century, but also through the first four centuries, used these specific ideas, mostly in the Gospel of John, to create what we know as the boundaries around Orthodox Christianity. So we know that best with the Nicene Creed. The product that is the Nicene Creed is the attempt of the early followers of Jesus to say, if you are doing this the way Jesus called us to do it, what does that mean we understand of the nature of God? That is the Nicene Creed. And it took a while, hundreds of years, for the creed to be finished in the form that we know it today. That wrestling with who Jesus is, and then, of course, who God is because of who Jesus is, we see as a progression through the Gospels. I've said it a hundred times. Mark written first, Matthew, Luke written next, John written last. Because John was written last, John had the benefit of the decades of development in the idea of who Jesus is and then who God is through Jesus. That's why John gets at, of all the Gospels, John gets at what sounds most Christian. And by that I mean kind of the orthodoxy and the theology of Christianity. That really is more John than anyone else. As we go through these next few chapters over these next few weeks, you will hear verses that you have heard your whole life. You hear them in liturgies, you see them on t-shirts and on coffee mugs, people quote them off the top of their heads. This is where people tend to anchor or root their foundation of the house that they build of their faith. And so as we go through this, I want you to ask your questions, what is perhaps most important to me? What is my starting place? Because if you're not clear about your starting place, who knows where you're gonna go? But if you can clarify, if someone were to say to you, what is most important to you about your faith? I would want you to have that answer. It doesn't mean it's the same answer your entire life. But it does mean have one now and then play with it and let it evolve and let it change and let your experience in the world shape your belief. But don't go without some kind of clarity of what your foundation and what your anchor really is because your starting point matters. Yeah. I believe that as well. But I go back to 
In what way? Well, that you're taking your own narrative with what you're looking for out of it. That is a great, uh, I, then I have miscommunicated. So the question is, it sounds like you're taking your own stuff in, which is eisegesis. What I mean for you all to do is as we read through these passages, what are you taking out that is most critical to you? So it's not about putting in whatever you brought in. Knowing that these chapters, these discourses, provide, have provided for the majority of Christians over the last 2,000 years the starting place for their theology. What then is your starting place for your theology? And if it's not any of these passages, don't worry about it. It doesn't have to be. But pretty much for most Christians, hey, can some, Bub, will you close that door now? It's cold. I see people wrapping themselves. Um, for most Christians over the last few centuries, these, particularly I would say the Reformation, if we think of the Reformation, both Protestant and Anglican, these verses are really where the reformers anchored their shift away from what had been just the only way to be Christian. And whenever someone made a shift, it was because they had a different starting point than perhaps someone else. When we look at the major reformers, they all started in a slightly different place. And then depending on where they started, then they ended up down the, down the path, very different places. Like the divergence was significant, but it's all because the starting places were slightly different. And I would want you all to vet some of this so that you can begin to clarify for yourself how you fundamentally anchor your faith. Okay. So let's take a look. We're going to just jump right on into chapter 14 because I have way too many notes and I'm not sure I can get through all this. So chapter 14, Jesus is going away and Jesus now explains the way to God for his disciples. So as Jesus is making his final stand and beginning this, these discourses, Jesus is trying to provide a map, so to speak, for his followers after he's gone. He's been with them physically, not very long. And it is distressing to the disciples. I mean, think about the disciples who have turned away from their professions, from their families, from their hometowns, and they have followed this teacher who's doing incredible things. And now the teacher says, by the way, in like a few hours or days, I'm going to die, is very distressing. And so he's trying to both comfort them and also give them a way forward so that they know then what to do when he's physically gone from their presence. And so let's just jump right on in. Chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, 
what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. We'll stop there. So Jesus speaks of his father's house. This is very interesting and it's meant to be very specific. Jesus has used that phrase once, other, once before in John's gospel to reference the temple. So in history, we know for the Jewish people, the temple is where heaven and earth meet. It was the physical representation of God's presence on earth. We, as you know, 21st century people, know that in Judaism, temple, synagogue, kind of synonymous, um, we often speak of temple when we really mean synagogue. If we're very specific and accurate in our language, there is only one temple, and that is in Jerusalem. There was one that was then destroyed for the exile, and then was rebuilt, and then destroyed again in 70 by the Romans. It has not existed since. There is a desire to have the third temple built. That's kind of the apocalyptic idea in Judaism, is that once the third temple comes, that's kind of God's return in all the power, and that's when the world is recreated. So that's just for our knowledge. When Jesus spoke of the temple before, he spoke of it as his father's house. Now Jesus is taking that a step further, and he's actually saying, I am going to my father's house. So there is this almost double intent. Yes, the temple may be God's house on earth, but where Jesus is going is to God's actual house. So it's not just that one point on the earth, but it is actually God's full presence, and there's room for everybody. It's this lovely image. It's this poetically beautiful way of saying not only is Jesus going to where he was meant to go always, but everybody can come. There's room for every person. And so I can imagine as Jesus is saying all of this that he's thinking, doesn't that sound good? Yes. Except Thomas is kind of like all the rest of us and says, I, I need more clarity. And so, verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In this moment is so good because Thomas is hearing Jesus literally. Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house. There's room for everybody. And, and, he, and, he, and then Jesus says, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas is like, I don't know where you're going. <laughs> and so how am I supposed to know where you're going? You've not even told us where you're going. Like, how do we get there? If you're going there, do we follow you now? Do we go later? And so then Jesus says, John 14, chapter 6, I mean, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This reply of Jesus's is so critically important to the development of Christianity, I cannot overstate it. This line I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, is perhaps the most debated verse 
in the entire Bible. What is he talking about? The good news is the disciples have no idea either. And so we are in good company because they have no clue. And so Jesus, in his attempt to be clearer, might even have made it less clear. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There are countless things I can say to you right now. And so we're going to just try a little and know that most of you will not be satisfied. And think about it and ask more questions. But we're going to try. So for many people, there is a claim that Jesus is the only way to get to God's kingdom. It's the only way to have a complete relationship with God. That is anchored right here. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This might feel good, but it can be problematic as our world becomes more and more complex. It, is, it was really easy to say that is it when the only people, not only that you knew, but that you would ever even see in your life were all Christian. Great. Sounds good. We're all together. Great. Now that it is impossible for, well, it, you shouldn't only know Christians. How about, I'll put it that way. Like, one would hope that in your life you have known other people who are not Christian. Ugh. Um, if you don't, if you don't, my invitation to you is to try harder. Um, so, as we live in the world, our experience of people who are not Christian becomes more and more common. Whether that's at work, in our neighborhoods, whether we read about people who are not Christian, we read things they write or say, or any number of things. As our world becomes more dynamic and more diverse, and by that, I don't actually mean the world. I actually mean your perspective of the world. As our perspectives of the world become more dynamic and diverse, it becomes harder for us to have that as our starting place. It feels somehow not quite right. And so what I want to do is try to unpack that feeling because I will tell you, I am still very much an Orthodox Christian. However, my experience for 20 plus years has been in comparative religion and world religions and all of that. I mean, I, can, I have taught other religions. I have done panels with people of other faiths and on and on. I am still very much Christian. And I anchor myself in this idea of Jesus as the way to get to God. Because I do not fall into the trap that I think is very human and easy, that believing in one thing then necessarily means the other things are wrong. That isn't necessary. I also think it's not necessary, not because I want it to be unnecessary. I think it's not necessary because it wasn't for Jesus necessary. Jesus was all all the time, inclusive of everybody. Jesus loved every person, healed anyone, ate with anyone, loved everyone. That was it. That's what he did. Never, 
did Jesus exclude people? Never. Never did Jesus refuse to love someone because of what they said, did, believe, nothing. Never. And so for us to believe that Jesus is the way to God is just fine because believing that we have found the right way to get to God does not mean that we have to believe others are wrong. We can just feel confident that we have made the right choice. That's it. And we can love and we can be graceful and we can be inclusive and we can be welcoming and all of those things. That idea alone, could we could spend months talking about that alone because our world says you cannot stop with just feeling confident in yourself. You must then go on to judge and condemn and exclude other people. That's what the world wants us to do. That's what truly the church has done most of its history because it is so human. And yet, do not let the church get in the way of Jesus. That's really important. Because if the church is ever getting in, your, in the way of Jesus, the church is doing something wrong. And so for those of you who have experienced the church seeming to get in the way of who you see Jesus in as, I'm sorry, getting in the way of who you see Jesus being in the Bible, they're not doing it right. That's going to be a hard pill for many of us to swallow. And it's not something that's meant to be easy. This is not something that's meant to be like one hour in Bible study one day clears everything up. That's not how this is going to be. This will be weeks, years, a lifetime of work for you to maintain in that very truest sense a Christian faith in the Jesus that is in the Bible not the Jesus that lots and lots of people in your life have told you exists. I'm going to take some water for a minute. <clears throat> I am debating what else to say to you because that's actually what I want to say. I am happy to fill that out or to provide more context so questions or comments to push on that might be helpful for us. Say it. Okay. The Jesus gets us commercials. I'm sorry. If you really understand what's behind that. Yeah, the message is great. Just the message and the pictures. Mm. Okay, good. The support behind it. My next section has Super Bowl ad um, asterisks. So we can, <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, <clears throat> so, so your first question is one of kind of uh, 
religious practice. So my, what I will say to you is the way I understand religion. Religion is meant to help us practice our faith best. We, left to our own devices, as individuals, could go off with all good intentions, but then not do the things that we would like done. I mean, the best example of this is like the recovery community. So if you think about people who are in recovery, and I'm actually gonna preach about this in a few Sundays. Um, people in recovery are in recovery for the rest of their life. I, and I did not realize this. So. In seminary, we actually studied the 12-step process because there is, there's really nothing better to seriously change behavior than the 12-step process. I mean, there are lots of nice things that have happened over time, but nothing's really had the track record and the impact of the 12 steps. And so we study it not because we might, well, I mean, some of us may need it at some point, but it's mostly because look at the best thing that we know of to actually change human behavior and how does that happen? And we'll talk about, we could talk about that some other time, but essentially the foundation of that is both the acknowledgement that there's a problem and also the willingness to remain in recovery for good. There's relationships and there's practice and all those things. But if you think about the recovery community, that's actually what religion should be, is essentially the starting place is I cannot do this alone. I am imperfect, and my imperfection will get the best of me if I don't make a firm decision right now to live in a particular new way. And then how do I do that? By being around people who are going to help me be better, and by knowing every single day that I still choose to live that way. And so for me, religion is essentially the recovery process for humans who are very profoundly imperfect as they seek that kind of promise of perfection in God through Jesus. So when religion does anything else, they're doing something wrong. And so to scare you into yoking yourself to their process, that's not okay. And I can't tell you how many times, because you know I was raised Catholic too, that there is this sense of like the baby who's not baptized going to at best going to purgatory but as some will say for sure going to hell because it's only baptism that gets you into heaven give me a break i mean that's my opinion so that is my profound theological opinion um and so what that does is that scares people into being part of a religious group it's, religion should not be scaring people into it. It should not be using fear to create loyalty. That, that's not good. However, it's very quick to say that religion is bad. Well, religion can certainly be bad. And religion has been really bad. And there's no religion that has been worse in human history than Christianity. So whatever kind of thing you think about like religions in general, Christians can trump every bad thing any other religious group has ever done, like many times over. And so for us to be so proud of not being like them, <laughs> uh, look in the mirror. So it's easy for then people to say, well, religion then is bad. 
Religion can absolutely be bad and should always be put in check, which is one of the reasons why communities like, one of the reasons I like being an Episcopalian is because it really is, when we say the priesthood of all believers, what we're actually saying is that we maintain our goodness together, that we actually need to keep each other in check because no, none of us, no one of us can ever make every good decision. We need all of us to work together to help refine one another in our faith. And if you do not yoke yourself to a real practice, your faith is highly, highly vulnerable. And so when people say, well, I don't wanna, I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're really espousing is a fundamental misunderstanding of our human condition. Because the idea that you can be spiritual and not religious is predicated on the idea that you yourself as an individual can maintain your own spiritual health. You cannot. We've seen it. I don't know how many times people, humans, can continue to prove that idea right. That left alone, we go way off the rails. We have to have a community that holds us together and keeps us accountable to each other. That's all religion is, is accountability in love to live our faith out. So I think, did I answer? Oh no, that was just baptism, that was just babies. Um, sorry, what was your other one? Oh, Super Bowl ad. So, we're going to pivot. I'm going to hold off on the Super Bowl ad because I think that this next section gets at what I want to say. If there was one thing as, as a priest, if I could make one single impact on people, we get at it in this next section. And it speaks to the Super Bowl ad. So let's, let's keep going. Is there any other just follow-up? Yes. So when Jesus prepares a place is one of those phrases that I would encourage you to read more poetically than literally. I don't think Jesus needs to like wash the linens for us or something like that. It's really about being the leader so that we are the followers. And so I think the preparation is almost like clearing the way for us. Now, Christianity, for a long time, has used this idea to say, before Jesus, people couldn't get to heaven because the path to heaven was not clear. And it's only by following after Jesus that one could get to heaven. And by get to heaven, for a lot of times people mean that literally, like get to wherever heaven is. Um, I would say broader and a more charitable interpretation of that is be with God. That one could not be with God before Jesus cleared the path to be with God. All I will say is that is not an inaccurate way to read this scripture. And so I would not debate that idea at any length with someone because it's one of those where that could be right. I do not know. However, 
the starting place that I have is always love and grace. And so it seems like Jesus's main mission was not really to do something new, but was to clarify what God had been trying to do in other ways. So the way I would tell the entire arc of God's salvation story is God's been trying to do this, but just through other means. And it was not getting through to people. And so God finally came himself to say this way, because the prophets and the judges and the, all the other people who were speaking for God, saying the same stuff, just weren't breaking through. And so to that end, given that that's my interpretation, the idea that pre-Jesus people couldn't be in complete, in God's complete presence after death doesn't really make any sense because God's been trying to bring people to himself the whole time, the whole time. It's just that it happened in this complete way through Jesus. So you will notice when I speak of Christianity, I speak of Jesus as the complete manifestation of God. By complete, what I am acknowledging is that God's grace and love is my starting point, and that God is trying to break through and get everybody, everybody. And so some people will get a little, some people will get a little more. I think the only complete revelation is through Jesus, but it doesn't mean that God is so small that God isn't trying to get at people everywhere all the time and throughout history. Of course God is. And so for me, in every way that people have sniffed a little bit of God or seen a glimpse of God or tried to be with God, that's good effort. And it is true. It's just incomplete. And that, for me, rides that real razor's edge of being both faithful to who Jesus is and also faithful to who Jesus is which is that all love always. Okay. No, well, that's what I yeah. just said. Um, so what if you haven't heard about Jesus? I, I think that's, uh, Christians have, <laughs> I remember there are some theologians who I'm sure felt so very proud of themselves um, when they came up with the idea, well, if one hasn't heard of Jesus, then we can't hold that against them. So maybe, maybe they get to heaven. <laughs> Thanks so much for your grace. Um, I, I think that, it falls under the same incomplete kind of idea so that, because if you look at most major religions, now obviously you've got little ones doing weird things, but if you look at the major ones, this is really not that different. Be good to each other, be kind, be loving, seek peace, I mean, all that sort of stuff. This is the actual living out of the religion as it's meant to be is quite similar. And so is that an accident? Well, I don't think so. I think that's God. I think that's God trying to break through and do the same thing all the time with everybody. I do think God broke through in wholeness in Jesus. 
And so, which is why for me having, I mean, I did all the stuff. I, when I was in college, I was such a seeker. I went to church every Sunday and I went to all different kinds of temples and other places of worship. And I read all the sacred texts and I did all that stuff. I chose to be Christian. It was also where I was raised. So I can't deny that that certainly had something to do with it, but for me, it was an explicit choice in my early 20s in a way that it wouldn't have been earlier than that. But because I went off and I did all of those things, I realized everyone's basically doing the same stuff. It looks different. Might have different words, um, different iconography, different colors, different clothes, different, that sort of stuff. But at their core, all the great religions of the world are seeking peace and love and I don't think that's an accident. I think that's God's largesse that we just simply, we just simply try to make God small enough for us to understand. And when you're trying to seek, when you're trying to make God small enough for you to understand, you're doing it wrong. Let God be God and then just try your best to follow. That's, that's what we can do. Okay, let's keep pushing. Look at verse eight. Chapter 14, verse eight. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not... Then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. In this little passage, Philip basically says, okay, I want to believe, so show me some proof. And Jesus says, what is it that you're missing here? The proof is me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I have done. That is proof of the Father. And then Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will do what I have done. It's very interesting because it's the doing that matters so much. Now, I'm going to flip John a little bit, and it's not because of me wanting it to be a certain way. It's because when you take the Gospels on the whole, not just John, but all four, Jesus says, follow me, five times more often than he says, believe in me. I do not think that's an accident. I think that's a, an understanding that Jesus has, and of course, then the, follow, the disciples have, of human nature. I think it is far easier for us to do something when we may not believe in it than it is for us to believe in something when we haven't done it. And so in that case... This follows, it kind of dovetails with the idea of what I think religion is good for. Doing what you hope to believe one day is the best way for you to believe it. As Anglican Christians, we anchor our entire identity on this idea. We firmly commit to the idea that praying shapes believing. That's the foundation of being an Episcopalian is that you do the thing, and in doing that thing, you shape 
what you believe. And so that's why we say, it doesn't matter how you feel on any given Sunday, go to church. You may be loving Jesus that Sunday, great. And you may be so angry and so mad. God does not care, go to church. You don't have to love Jesus. I remember going to a Methodist youth group when I was probably a sophomore in high school. And, you know, the Methodist church, per the usual, had a bigger youth group than the Catholic church. And so I showed up, and at some point, literally, everyone was eating candy and standing on chairs and singing songs. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. Because what happens if I don't want to, because I didn't that day, I don't want to eat candy, and I don't want to sing songs and stand on chairs. And so it was kind of like, what am I supposed to do now? Because I don't feel like loving Jesus 100% right now. What I liked about the Catholic Church, which is what I found in the Episcopal Church, is your feelings, although important, actually don't matter as much as your doings. So do it. And the doing over time shapes the feelings and the believings. And so I will say to anybody, we say this to new members or people who are, you know, some people who say to me like spiritual but not religious, that kind of stuff. I'll say, just come, just do, just give, just serve, just care. You'll believe later. Like if you're sitting here struggling, like, I, yeah, one of the, my favorite things Episcopalians will say to me is, I just don't believe everything in the creed. And we say it every Sunday. That doesn't matter. Say it anyway. You don't need to believe everything. Like, if you need to believe everything, then aren't you just paralyzed forever? Because unless you're, like, so much better than everyone else I know, um, you're going to question belief in some way. Do not worry about it. Do it anyway. And so that gets me to the Super Bowl ad, where I think it is so brilliant because the ad itself, if you didn't see it, it's just image after image after image of people you would not expect washing the feet of people you would not expect that they would ever wash. So not only are the foot washers not people that you would expect would be washing feet, but they're trying to represent that the feet they're washing are of people that you wouldn't think the foot washers would ever be around. And it was image after image after image of this. And what was so powerful about that is I think they got it right. And that is just do it. It doesn't matter what you think of that person. It doesn't matter if they agree with you. It doesn't matter what they've done ever. You serve them and you care for them and you love them and you include them and you welcome them every time. That's it. And that to me is what religion gets wrong when it gets stuff wrong, is they think that they're doing things right by holding people accountable to some litmus test of things before they get the love and the care and the service and all the other things. Nope, that's not how this works. And so for us, and we can debate those nuances and ideas all day long, but for us what that really means is if you're not actually doing something about your faith, your faith doesn't actually matter. And so you can believe whatever you want, but if you're not doing it, then your belief 
is worthless. And that is why for me, the whole believe in me and you get to heaven bit has less weight. I don't think it's wrong, so don't hear that. But in the prioritization of what is most important about being Christian, it is, I would say, impossible to read all four Gospels, put them together, and land anywhere beyond you have to do something to love and to care and to serve before the belief actually matters. All right, hit me. What you got? I saw your hand. They said, why did they spend that money helping the homeless? Those, those, well, those they didn't spend that money helping the homeless. Um, but, we, and we can debate. They should have spent it on the homeless. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. So why did you anoint Jesus' feet with that perfume? We could have sold it and given it to the homeless. Yes. Um, so I love it when people do stuff. And then those of us who study the Bible are like, wow, well, Jesus handled that in, like, John chapter 12. Um, so <laughs> I also want to say that intentions do matter. But I don't want us to kind of, oh, do I want to say this? I don't know if I want to say this. Um, we can disagree on specifics with the group of people who sponsored that ad. And we can also agree on the idea of the ad. So it's one of those baby bathwater moments where, I mean, I would say I definitely have no issue with birth control. So you may, you may not know this, the, the He Gets Us campaign is pr funded primarily by the family who used to own Hobby Lobby. And so, you know, they have you know, over the last couple decades been at the forefront of limiting health and health care because of certain religious ideas and that sort of stuff. And so the big one became the birth control, like you couldn't get birth control through their health insurance because they thought birth control was not Christian. Um, and so I, I can disagree with that and also think they got the ad right. So that, I just, when, with all the things going on in the world, like one of those things were like, like in that ad, but not necessarily agreeing with them on birth control, like does not keep me awake at night. Um, I mean, that is the smallest potato kind of thing. And so I would want you to not lose yourself around the axle of some very small thing. Not that it's, <laughs> access to health insurance is not small. That's not what I'm saying. But we can kind of lose the forest for the trees if we're not careful. And so the small things matter until they undermine the big things. So let them matter, but don't let them undermine the bigger priorities. Okay. It's really hard to say to do like pro-life stuff and then also be for war. So I'm just saying. Um, so just, you know, chew on that for a minute. Um, so I saw other hands. Yes.
Yes. Sure. Is that enough? Yeah. So the comment question is, it feels a little guilty that the acts of service are for people like a family member. Um, what I would, is that enough? So what I would say is, you know, in the aggregate, no, that's not enough. But man, let yourself off the hook. Like, you don't have to make every day the perfect day of doing. So life shifts. And so if you're in a season where you're caring for a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child, anything like that, care for them. And do not worry that day, that month, those years, that that's how you are serving. And whenever you are able, if you can diversify what you're doing, even better. But we can feel guilty so easily. Do not feel guilty. Guilt is not part of God's economy. So let yourself go with the guilt. And just allow yourself to be continuously nudged. Because until you're dead, you can do something. And so that doing could just be praying in your head. It could be reading scripture. It could be sending a nice note or email to a friend to let them know you're thinking about them or making a phone call. You don't have to go build a house for someone. I mean, there are all different levels. Do what you are able to do, and then you're doing enough. And if you feel the nudge that what you think, that your ability is bigger than you thought it was, well, then let Jesus nudge you to do just a little bit more, but no guilt. Guilt is not part of this. It's 11.31 and I'm sorry. We have to cut this off. Send me questions, send me comments. We didn't even get to the second part of chapter 14, so we'll get there next week. Happy Ash Wednesday. <laughs>